Oopsla podcast brings you up to speed on topics covered at this year's Oopsla conference in Montreal, Canada. For more information, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. So today is the last day of Oopsla. For you, it's possibly passed quickly. For me, this Oopsla week has been the last of 128 that I've spent planning this conference. Joining me for the past year have been 26 organizing chairs and dozens of reviewers representing varying but high levels of obsession with figuring what would make this conference worthwhile for software people like you. I'm particularly proud of the keynotes and invited speakers we've managed to attract. For most people, to have seen all these speakers would have taken an entire career. Today we have two more fabulous speakers. I've known Gregor too long and in too many different circumstances to introduce him straightforwardly. Yeah, he's over there now worrying. My first encounter with him was when he and I worked on the specification of the common lisp object system uh, for the common lisp ANSI standard back in 1986. He was kind of a young kid then with a peculiar pile of source code that he put together called portable common loops that he was proud of and wanted to become the basis of the standard for common lisp object system. He was in your face at that time, but right mostly. Certainly, he was the most junior person in the main group of six, according to academic degrees and career experience, but he was one of the clear intellectual leaders. During that period of about three years, when we worked on CLOS together, we also worked on the politics of LISP standardization. One of the days that stands out was January 22, 1988. Do you remember that day? You will in a minute. Oh, you'll re- you'll re- he won't remember, you'll remember. When Gregor and I and a couple of others at a commonless standardization meeting on the island of Kauai went to a bar to watch Super Bowl XXIII between the San Francisco 49ers and the Cincinnati Bengals, we tried to make our mark two ways. The patrons mostly seemed to be from Southern California and thus were rooting against the 49ers. Whenever the 49ers scored a touchdown, which was only twice, Gregor and I would stand up and dance the icky shuffle. This was a dance, uh, it was a touchdown celebration created by the Bengals running back, Icky Woods. Gregor also wanted to create a new sports term for making a clean pass completion. So whenever Joe Montana, the the 49ers quarterback, completed a pass to Jerry Rice, the star receiver, Gregor and I would loudly comment on how Montana faxed that pass to Rice. As best I could tell, these two marks achieved only anger and puzzlement from the beleaguered Bengals fans. They lost. Since then, Gregor has worked on meta-objects and the meta-object protocol, open implementations, and aspects. About two years ago, he and I were on an expert panel together for about a year studying ultra-large-scale systems at the SEI. Throughout his career, Gregor has been trying to make programming clear and fun for designers and developers. He wants to make programs look the way people think about them and not the way a compiler does. He isn't in your face anymore, though perhaps his ideas are. You need to pay attention to them, my friend Gregor. Thank you, Dick. So you might have expected to talk about aspect-oriented programming. And indeed, that would have been a good thing to do. I could have built on years of work by a bunch of people. I could have tried to bring those threads together. I could have responded to critics. 
I could have talked about some open issues, and I probably could have put together a good talk about that. But that's not what this talk is. It's not about aspect-oriented programming. It's consistent with AOP, but it's not about AOP. Instead, what I want to talk about is two conflicts that have confused and bothered me for years. The first conflict is between programming languages on the one hand and things like design patterns and Mylan on the other hand. And that conflict is between the kind of power that languages give you versus the kind of flexibility that patterns and Mylan have at dealing with high-level structures and situation particulars. The second conflict has to do with foundations. It's about how we should conceptualize software and software development. And the conflict there is between the very mathematical formal foundation that we currently use and things I learned from colleagues at Park about the way people work and make sense of the world and intentionality. Now, you might be thinking, this is going to be a train wreck. Both of those conflicts are completely irresolvable. He should know better than trying to talk about one, much less both. And you might be right, it might be a train wreck. But I have a novel strategy. I'm going to combine and conquer. Seriously, the more I've thought about these problems, in particular the thing I learned from colleagues at, at Park, the more I've come to believe that they come down to the same thing, which really has to do with sort of reassessing the role that formality plays in our field. I'm going to argue that if you look at the world, the world is deeply sloppy and imprecise. And that what we need to figure out some way of doing is embracing both at the foundational level and also in the way we build systems some of that sloppiness and imprecision. I should have changed slides, sorry. That was that slide. Okay, here's how the talk's going to work. I'm going to start out very concretely looking at the Mylan system. And then I'll get a little more conceptual and talk about design patterns and programming languages. Then... I'll talk about ethnomethodology and intentionality. That's where the talk will kind of hit its conceptual ground. From there, I'll kind of lay out this radical thesis, this thing I'm beginning to wonder about and thinking about starting a project in, uh, having to do with reassessing the role of formality. Then I'll talk about mechanisms for a while. I'll briefly go through the joint point mechanisms of AOP and use that to try to sketch out this registration-based effectiveness mechanism that I think we might be able to use. I'll use three examples to kind of suggest what that mechanism might be like, what it might be like to build software that way, and then I'll wrap up. One more word of setup. I find this talk extremely difficult to give. Um, there's, there's a tremendous breadth of, to of topics, things in which I'm not expert, in which I'm only informed. And for each of these topics, I think there'll be people in the room who know much more than me. So grant me a little bit of leeway there. And also grant me leeway to use the examples I know best. I'm not saying these are the best examples. I'm sure there's other work that's even better examples, but it's easiest for me to work with the examples that I know best. Okay, so let's start with Mylan. How many people here have used the Mylan Eclipse plugin? Okay. Mylan is a plugin for Eclipse, which is focused on a thing called task-oriented development. Um, and you can sort of see the problem that Mylan's trying to solve right away here on the left. This is a developer who's actually working on the Mylan system, and that, in the package explorer, is a list of all the packages. And they're closed up. If they open them up, there'd be more classes, and if they open those up, there'd be more methods. And as soon as you started to work, that thing would be unmanageable. So Mylan deals with that, 
by providing what it calls task-based context support. So what happens here is that the developer opens up uh, their next task, a bug that's been assigned to them. And here they have a description out of the bug database for, for what that is. And they read through it, and they go down to the comments, because that's where they're going to find a note from the senior developer who assigned them this task. And they open up the comments, and they read this comment, and it sort of says something about the task. And what's also associated with that is a thing called a task context. And so they go ahead and open up the task context. And what you'll see here is that once the task context comes in, instead of there being a whole bunch of things in the package explorer, there's going to be only a very small number of things in the package explorer. It's going to be what's called the context for that task. Let me pause a second. So there's a much smaller number of things just a couple packages, a couple classes, a couple methods. So where did that context come from? Well, if you watch what's happening here as this developer themselves starts exploring this issue, every time they click on something, Mylan has what's called a degree of interest model. And every time you click on something, its degree of interest gets incremented. And also the degree of interest of things that are connected get incremented. So if you click on a method, its class gets a tick, too. And what it shows on the left is just the things whose degree of interest is sufficiently high to warrant showing. So as this person is navigating around, the task context gets a little bit bigger. Now, <clears throat> if they get interrupted, if somebody comes in and says, no, 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 you've got to do this other task right away, then what can happen is they go back to, they go back to their task list, Come on, come on, come on. They go back to their task list, they click on another task, and their task context switches to the context for that other task. So you can see right away why this is a winner, because you don't have to spend the next 20 minutes reopening all the buffers that you needed to have open to do this other thing. The things that you were looking at before are there, and now if you come back to the task we had opened, it resets to that. So that's kind of the Mylan idea. This is work by Mick, Mick Kirsten and Gail Murphy and now a team of people. Um, um, I'm not going to go into all of it, of course, but let me just make a couple points about it. One of the things that's going on here is that the definition of a task context is not formalized in some sense of formalized. I should say now, what exactly I mean by formal is part of the work that this project would entail. Um, but it's not formalized in the sense, certainly, that nobody sits down and writes an interface description or a declaration of, of what is this task context. Instead, what happens is that it evolves from watching the developers. It's also not rigidly, rigidly enforced. I didn't show you this, but at any moment in time, you can just press one button and you see everything. And then you could select some things and then go back to the task context view and they'll be in the task context. So it's not rigidly enforced. And it's also socially constructed and negotiated. Right? The team of developers who work on this system grow the task context for each of the tasks as they go on. People, people who aren't using some of these terms I'm using up top describe this as lightweight management of higher-level structures, right? be those emergent structures, cross-cutting structures, whatever they are. I also want to point out Mylan that had extraordinarily fast adoption. First public release to the point where it was included in the default Eclipse download was less than two years. Okay, design patterns. 
Now, I certainly don't need to introduce design patterns here. I should say one thing about this talk. In, in several places, I'll be using quotes from, from papers. I've put a tremendous amount of quote in the context so that when you get the slides later, if you want to, they'll be there. I'll be reading the parts that matter, so you don't need to panic if you can't read this. Um, <clears throat> so this is a paper by Craig Chambers and Bill Harrison and John Vlasides um, from Popple 2000 about a debate on language and tool support for design patterns. And at this particular point in the paper, in fact, that's what they're talking about, is whether there should be some kind of formalized support for design patterns. Let me be clear. They're not talking about do design patterns point out deficiencies in tools and languages that should be addressed. Everybody agrees that the answer to that question is yes. What they're talking about is should there be some formal thing where you know, there's a language construct called observer, or there's a language construct called mediator, or there's a tool button called observer. Right? They're talking about that, that very for, crisp formalization of it. And, and what John says at this point is he says, by mid-1995, we had developed a tool for browsing patterns online and for generating their implementations automatically. And it taught us much about the relative merits of patterns and tools. The main drawback of the tool was inflexibility. Developers use patterns in surprising ways often as starting points from which to evolve specialized solutions that the pattern authors never foresaw. It's hard to generate code that's that flexible. The generator can be designed to cover the trade-offs and variants that are explicit in the pattern, but it can't vary far from them. And he goes on to say, Generated code is often difficult to integrate with existing code. Subject-oriented programming might help. In fact, that's true. Subject-oriented programming does help with that. Um, but, but going on, he says, the most useful aspect of the tool turned out to be decidedly low-tech. The book's text itself in HTML form with hyperlinks for cross-referencing. So pulling out from that, the points I, I want to stress is that the formalized patterns are too inflexible in the face of surprising uses, surprising combinations, integration with domain particulars. Also that the meaning and the applicability and the form of the pattern are socially mediated. In different organizations or different teams, exactly how a pattern might work becomes particular to that situation. And that the hyperlink documentation was most useful. I also want to point out that this idea too had extraordinarily fast adoption. I take fast adoption to mean that there's something about the idea that makes it easy to integrate. That's one of the, that's one of the things I take fast adoption to mean. So now let's look at programming languages, the place that I have traditionally called home. Programming languages are all about formality. For the purpose of today's talk, I want to say that programs are effective formal abstractions of computation. And let me unpack those three words. By effective, I mean a particular thing. I don't just mean useful. Okay. I mean something much more particular than that. So I'm going to say that a lot of things that are very good and useful are not effective. Please don't be offended by that. I mean this very particular thing. I mean in particular that programs do the physical work of generating a computation. If you edit a program, you get a different computation. If you edit the Goff patterns book, not all the pattern code in the world changes. Right? The patterns book is not effective. Programs are in that precise sense of effective. It's a good 
it's a very good thing that if you edit the Goff pattern book, the whole world doesn't change, right? Not being effective is not a bad thing. And a lot of what this talk is about is moving back and forth between effectiveness and non-effectiveness. By formal, I mean simply that they're a formal system. Right? There are formal symbols. You can manipulate them, dot, 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 dot. I also mean that there's a sense in which they're crisp and discreet, in which the ontology that they start with is, is, is very clear. And abstraction is a word I use with some reluctance, because certainly programs are anything but abstract. Um, they're, they're concrete things that live on disk drives. Um, but they are abstractions of the computation, right? They don't have the entire computation particulars in them. Okay. Now, one of the things that comes with, with, with programming languages is this effectiveness is extraordinarily powerful, and the composition of it is extraordinarily powerful, right? We can take, we can take with programs two small computations and put them together to get a bigger computation, dot, dot, dot. And that ability to control the composition is a large part of the work in programming languages. And in order to get that composition to work, we focus on having units that are what we call well-defined, context-insensitive, orthogonal, right? OO, declarative, functional, whatever you want to call it. All of those things are about coming up with notions that are clearly enough defined that you can compose them together and reason from a small set of principles about what will happen. We build off programming languages in, in a picture I kind of want to draw like this. The picture ends up being called lots of different things. Some people call it layers. Some people call it APIs, components, frameworks, da, 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 da. It's always basically the similar idea, which is that you've got an interface that pre presents an effective abstraction in the way that I'm talking about. If you make calls on that interface, something happens. And each module implements the higher level in terms of some other levels. And I'm going to describe that as effective formality all the way down. From the very top to the very bottom, you've got a formal system that effectively describes what should happen. So you can start to see some of the contrast here, right? The languages are effective, crisp, formal, right? And patterns are somehow, they're not effective, certainly, and they're a little bit looser. And they're all about being context-sensitive and Languages try to restrict context sensitivity as much as possible. So let me keep going. Now what I want to do is try to bring in some of the work from colleagues that I had at Park, in particular Lucy Suchman and Brian Smith. Now, you know, most of what I learned from these people, right, I mean, I was tremendously fortunate. My office was actually physically between their two offices. Uh, most of what I learned from them, I learned in, in the hallway, at talks, at hiring meetings when they were making their most positive case for hiring somebody new. What I'm doing here is I'm backing all of that up with published work. So there'll be a lot of quotes here from published work. I didn't learn this stuff directly from the published work. Uh, Lucy did work in ethnomethodological studies of work, and her, her PhD dissertation was called Plans and Situated Actions, and I'll be using the second edition of that. And Brian did work, as you know, a long time ago in reflection, and from there he kind of kept going depth first um, in foundations of computation and intentionality. And I'll be using his book on the origin of objects. Just, just out of curiosity and also to wake you up, how many people here, raise your left hand if you've read a substantial fraction of Lucy's dissertation or think you've read enough of her other stuff that it counts. 
Raise your left hand actually high. Okay, I don't need a very many bits to count that. How many people think they've read a substantial fraction of Brian's book? You know, I can say whatever I want here. No, but I'll, but I'll try not to. Uh, okay. The perceived common threads here are going to be that the world isn't formal. It's at least not formal all the way down. Nobody's saying that formality is never a good idea. It's just that it's certainly not always the right idea. And that that has real consequences for software. So let me try to work through this. Again, there's a second edition of Lucy's PhD dissertation, which is now called Human Machine Reconfigurations. And when she first did it, it was many things. It was a discussion of smart user interface design. It was a response to the planning style AI of the early 80s. In particular, there's a story about how people work together and how they construct shared understanding and the roles played by artifacts when they construct that understanding. Ethno-methodology is a big word. Let me just try to unpack it very quickly. And, And here's certainly a place where I won't do justice to all the subtleties in the work. Basically, the idea was, it, it represents a shift in sort of perspective about social science, away from the idea that there is an objectively given social world that social scientists sort of have to discover and discover how people act with, to the idea that it is replaced by the assumption that our everyday social practices render the world publicly available and mutually intelligible. It is those practices that constitute ethnomethods. So they're basically saying if you watch what people do and you look at when they describe what the world is and how they're thinking and dot, 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 that's where you see how the world works. It's not, there's not some big objectively given theory. In, in, in the book, um, she describes in one place very nicely, very concisely, sort of the ethno-methodological view of purposeful action and shared understanding under five propositions. I'll skip the first two, uh, although they're quite interesting. I just want to focus on the ones most relevant to what I'm saying today. The third is that the objectivity of the situations of our action is achieved rather than given. I'm going to explain all this in a minute, but going on, a central resource for achieving the objectivity of situations is language which stands in a generally indexical relationship to the circumstances. And as a consequence of the indexicality of language, mutual intelligibility is achieved on each occasion of interaction with reference to situation particulars rather than being discharged once and for all by a stable body of shared meaning. Just out of curiosity, how many of you believe in scientific objectivity? Oh, that's good. Because this goes, in part, goes right at that. Let me talk about it a bit more. Less scientific objectivity than just the notion that day-to-day there's objectivity. Let me talk about this indexicality thing. I think all of us know what indexicals are. But, but Lucy draws a specific point out of this, so give me just a second. Indexicals are expressions that rely on their situation for significance. The exemplary indexicals being first and second person pronouns tense and specific time and place adverbs such as here and now. So here, now, me, dot, 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 those are indexicals. But using an example which is itself from from another piece of writing by Waldinger, she points out that it's a bit more subtle than that. 
Imagine that you have a host and a guest, and that they're in the host's office looking at a photo album. And the guest says, that's a nice one. Or that they're on their way home, and they stop at the grocery store, and they're standing in front of the lettuce bin, and the guest says, that's a nice one. Now, it's straightforward under the idea of, index, of indexicality to say that that's is an indexical, right? We don't know exactly, but in the first case, that probably refers to some picture, and in the second case, that refers to a head of lettuce. But what Lucy points out is that nice is also an indexical, because unless your host looks like a cabbage, what you mean when you say nice is probably going to be quite different. And she goes on to say that the visitor and host will never establish in just so many words precisely what it is that the visitor intends and the host understands. Their interpretation of the term nice will remain partially unarticulated, located in their unique relationship to the photograph and to the context of the remark. Yet the shared understanding they do achieve will be perfectly adequate for purposes of their interaction. Going on, this next quote is actually from the same page, um, uh, next paragraph, but it's taken out of somebody else's work. Emphatically, that does not mean that speakers do not know what they are talking about, but instead that they know what they are talking about in that way. Because all language, including the most abstract or eternal, stands in an essentially indexical relationship to the embedding world. Here's the thing I want you to take away from all this. Three points. People never understand each other precisely. It wouldn't be possible, and it's okay. Right? You know, I, I certainly, with Lucy in the room, would not reduce her book to those three points. But for our purposes today, for the quick summary I want to give, those three points are certainly, are certainly valid, if not complete, at least as I understand it. So let me go on and talk about some of Brian's work. So this book on the origin of objects came out in 1996. Um, and the sort of origin of the book is it started as a project in Foundations of Computation, right? Three lists started as a project in, in Foundations of Computation. And it became an exploration of intentionality and ontology, because Brian ended up believing that the only way you could explain computation was in terms of intentionality, which I'll be talking about. And, you know, it became sort of a new metaphysics, what he calls a new metaphysics, a philosophy of presence. So, Brian is a guy who does depth-first thinking. Uh, the way to think about this book for our purposes is it's about how intentionality works and arises. So what's intentionality? Well, Brian's got several hundred pages trying to explain it, so it's, quick to, it's hard to summarize. But here's a summary from Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. It says, intentionality is the power of minds to be about, to represent, or to stand for things, properties, and states of affair. So if you sort of want the quick summary... Intentionality is the ability to have aboutness relationships. Okay. Now, I need to point out that intentionality is a whole different word than intention and intent. Right? An intent involves intentionality, but they're different. Okay. 
Intent is a course of action that one intends to follow. And is also, of course, different than intention with an S and intentionality with an S, which are by contrast with extension and extensionality. There is one word that people tend to use. There, the middle word is sort of non-technical. The bottom word is technical in a different sense, and the top word is technical in the sense we're talking about today. The word intentional tends to be used in both the top and middle sense. I'll be using it just in the top sense today. I'm going to try to never, from this point forward in the talk, utter something which could have either of the second meanings. I'll just be talking about intentionality when I make a sound that sounds like intentional. So why does this matter to us? Well, let's look at a trivial banking system. In this trivial banking system, let's look at developing a trivial banking system. In this trivial banking system, we've got sort of a developer here and a little bit of code, and there's some computation inside the machine, and there's Sue's actual account. So using some of the concepts that I've been talking about in terms of, of um, patterns in programming languages, uh, we can certainly say that the program is formal, the computation is concrete, right? It's running inside a physical computer plugged into the wall. Sue's account may be abstract or may be concrete. We don't know. If, if this bank actually has a slot in which there are gold, then Sue's account in some sense is concrete. If it's like every other bank on earth, then Sue's account is abstract. Whether Sue's account is formal or not is an interesting question. Probably is. The developer is certainly concrete. And we could decorate this a bit more. We could also look at the relationships between these. Right? The program, as I've said, is effective and formal. That's one sense of the word implements. Right? We often use program to implement computation. The computation is effective and formal. That's a different sense of the word implements because sometimes a sub, a sub part of the computation implements a higher part. And the program, in some sense, now... People use different words here. Sometimes they say represents, and sometimes they say a third sense of implements. But the program either represents or implements the bank account. And then, of course, the developer has got all kinds of relationships, not only to the three artifacts, but to the relationships between the artifacts. Right? The developer writes the code. The developer debugs the fact that the computation isn't doing what they thought the code did, dot, 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 dot. And what we know about all those relationships is that they are not effective. Remember, I'm using effective in a particular way. I'm not using the sense of not effective in that you probably shouldn't have hired that particular programmer. I mean, not effective in that when the programmer thinks it, it doesn't just happen. Okay. But that's a trivial banking system. Let's look at developing software more in general. When you're developing software more in general, there are many developers and many artifacts. There's much more code. There's things like configuration files. There's documentation of patterns. There's design documents. There's bug databases. There's user manuals. There's, there's customers or users, whichever you'd like to call them. The computation's more complicated these days. It's almost always distributed or at least parallel. Dot, 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 dot. And so there's many kinds of artifacts, and there's many diverse properties and relationships among those artifacts of the kind I've just been talking about. And what we have is a field at the level of maturity we're at is we have numerous theories and areas of work that focus on parts of this picture. 
So denotational semantics and other kinds of semantic accounts focus on the relationship between the code and the computation. Sometimes they focus on the relationship between the code and, and things that happen in the real world for sort of real-time semantics. Product line architectures talk about relationship between configuration files and, and documentation and code modularity. Requirements analysis does the kinds of things it does. Development tools focus kind of on this whole space in here. And given the work that everybody in this room does, we could sort of color every pixel on this slide red by adding different pieces of good work that talk about different subparts of this whole picture. Now, <clears throat> to be very careful here, what I want to say is that all these relationships are intentional. And that therefore, what's interesting to me about intentionality, and I argue interesting to Brian, is that intentionality steps up as a spanning theory to talk about the entire software development enterprise from people to running code. But I have to be really careful. Okay? Here's a couple of the things I have to be careful of. Some scholars in this area would object on the grounds of making a distinction between derived intentionality and original intentionality. They would say that only the developer, being a human, can have original intentionality, and that the computation has, at best, derived intentionality. Other people would say that the computation can't possibly be intentional because of the formal symbol system account of computation, in which, since it's a formal symbol system, it's semantic-free, and if it's semantic-free, it can't possibly have about relationships, so it can't be intentional. Other people would say, on similar grounds, look, these, 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 these lifeless artifacts can't possibly be intentional. I'm going to push all of those objections aside on, on, on two, maybe, I think, I think I thought of a third one at breakfast. On two or three grounds, let's see how many I come up with. On the first ground, that the work in intentionality I'm going to use, namely Brian's work, I think gives me the leeway to do that. On the second ground, that they're all at least targets of intentional relationships from the developer. So no matter what, intentionality is all over this page, whether it talks about relationships from the pattern documentation to the code or not. And also on the ground that I don't really need them to be intentional. I just am relying on the things that intentionality says about them. So now, that said, let me go look at sort of Brian's account of intentionality. Brian's account of intentionality is, is rooted on a couple of key ideas. The first is that he says the world is fundamentally characterized by an underlying flex or slop, a kind of slacker play that allows some bits to move about or adjust without much influencing and without being much influenced by other bits. Brian says, look, this fact is so obvious that it's hard to see. And so in order to help you see it, he posits a thing called the gear world. Right? In the gear world, all there are are gears. These are perfect, unconstructible gears. They're all interlinked, but they don't lock up. They're just all interlinked so that if any one gear moves, every other gear moves a little bit. And what Brian says that, is that in that world the need for about relationships doesn't arise because in some sense, since you can't become, if you're gear 309, since you can't become disconnected from gear 912, you don't need to have an about, you don't need to represent gear 912. 
You're never disconnected from it. What he says is that the world's primordial flex or play does two crucial things. It establishes the problem that intentionality solves, and it provides the wherewithal for its solution. Look, I just said how that works. Here's how it works. Since you can become disconnected, you, you want to represent things. Since you can't always see the evening star, you need to sort of have this notion of the evening star so that you can, in some sense, talk about this thing to which you have no effective access. That's the problem that intentionality solves, and it's also the solution. Once you're, you're building about relationships to something, there's the possibility that your about relationship might be wrong. Or that your about relationship might be fanciful. You could say to yourself, you know, I wonder what it would be like if Dick was dressed as the cat in the hat. And if the world didn't have this slopper play, bang, Dick would be dressed as the cat in the hat just from me having had that thought. And that would indeed be a very strange world. If we all, if every thought you had just kind of, right, you wouldn't have intentionality. So there's this crucial point that Brian makes, which is that, the, that semantics is really about things that exceed your effective grasp. Notice that's very different than most programming language semantics, right? Those are things that are completely in your effective grasp. Brian goes on to say that the world is not presumptively discrete. Indeed, it is completely opposite of formal as it is possible to imagine. It is instead permeated by, and he lists these six properties. Again, I'll read you through these, and the slides will be available, so you don't have to read all the text. I want you to focus on the examples more than the terms that he calls them, because the examples are what really do the work here. He says indefiniteness or zest. This is an interesting example of why it's a bit of work to read Brian's book. On page 324, he says indefiniteness in six examples. And then on page 325, there's a several-paragraph explanation of how he should have said zest. So I'll say zest. Zest at the edges of given objects, such as the boundaries of the region on the wall where I ask you to write your name. Right? You don't, a student comes into your office and you don't give them millimeter precise directions about where to put their name. Zest between and among objects of the same type, such as whether you are standing on this sand dune or the neighboring one. Zest among different types, such as chutzpah, bravado, ego, self-confidence, and brashness. You need all those words, right? Anybody here want to tell me exactly how they differ? Can't quite do it. Zest between objects and the types they exemplify, implying that the instance of relationship is itself approximate, contested, and potentially unstable. As, for example, in whether the headache you have this morning is the same one you had last night or a different one of the same type, and similarly for patches of color, fog, and the rain, Zest between and among different realms of human endeavor, such as the political, the social, the technical, the religious, the aesthetic, the psychological, etc. If I manage to convince you in this talk that the world is sloppy, you will almost certainly lose that belief once the lights come up and you start looking at this room, right, in which everything is so crisp, right? These are manufactured objects. So, Take this slide and go out in a field of wheat and think about that for a while. Okay, This is not the right place to sort of see this. But this list ought to, you know, I mean, 
this slide, to me, fundamentally kicks object-oriented programming hard. And in fact, it kicks all programming hard. Because what all programming is about is it's about saying, look, the ontology at least is fixed. Right? OO says, you got objects. You can call them what you want, but they're all objects. And this says, no, you don't even get to do that. Right? The idea of precise individuation criteria just isn't right. So then Brian talks about this process called registration, in which, look, we do have clear, we do have clear thoughts, right? We do individuate individual things. So the question is, if at the bottom the world is zesty, how do you get that? And he talks about this thing called registration, by which he means something like parse makes sense of find there to be structure, take as being a certain way, or carve the world into. And he describes some essential properties of registration. First, that it's the net activity that leads to a registration, and that it's originally neutral as to the appropriate locus, if any, of the split between the subject and the object, the registrar and the registered, and the register and the registrar and all of the social context that, that goes into the registration. Think of this as just meaning that registration is kind of something that's very context sensitive and out in the middle. So here's what Brian and Lucy's work says, I think. One thing it says is that the actual world is as opposite of formal as it is possible to imagine. There is no single right structure or ontology. Abstraction is transient, shifting, and negotiated. Even abstractions are negotiated. I will trivialize all of that into the idea that things are not formal at the bottom, because Brian's kind of talking down at the registration level. Lucy and all the other scholars in that area say things like they know what they are talking about in that way, right? That actions, including planned production and talking, are situated, and that objectivity is achieved rather than given. All language is indexical. I will trivialize that as things are not formal at the top, because the bottom is kind of where registration happens, and the higher level of abstractions are where we engage with other people. So those two things are not formal or trivializations, but they're the ones I'm going to use. Now, here's kind of the radical thesis. And I say thesis because this is not even a project that I've really determined to do. But, but I think it is a project that needs doing, so I think I have determined to do it. Writing the talk was sort of thinking about whether I should do it. But the thesis is that to get at higher level interesting issues... By get at, I mean work with, understand, have effective access to, and I'll talk a bit about how it really means moving in and out of effective access. To get at that, formality is not the foundational idea, and layers of effective formality is not the right mechanism. Uh, let me just say again, I'm not proposing that, you know, that tomorrow there'll be no formality left. They're not saying that either. What I'm saying is, that if you think formality is going to carry you all the way up, I think that might not be right. That effectiveness has to be more sloppy. It has to somehow be negotiated, periodic, partial, evolving, built on something like registration. And I not only want to do it, be able to do it, I want a theory for it. So here's some objections. Objection number one, this kind of stuff is hooey. Well, that rejection I dismiss out of hand. 
There are rich, very powerful intellectual communities with empirical data that show that these ways of thinking get at things that are important. Another objection might be, look, the kind of stuff isn't hooey, but your talk is. That might be true. I am not as expert on these issues uh, as they are. On the other hand, I have been trying to pull it all together into a thing. And if this version of it's not hooey, maybe in a few years, if this version of it's hooey, maybe in a few years it won't. Another objection might be, look, this might be true for people, but programs are engineered. Programs can and must be crisp. The problem with that is, at some level that's true, but more and more, but two things make that make me question that. First is programs are engineered by groups of people working in social settings. So the programs are, are deeply immersed in this kind of issue, even if they themselves shouldn't manifest this kind of issue. And second, the computations are immersed socially. So at the very least, programs have to be able to deal in this kind of world. Another objection might be, look, yep, you've nailed it. This is the difference between languages and tools. Tools can be kind of sloppy, fuzzy, da-da-da. Languages can't be. I hope that's not right, because there's some good things about languages, like effective composition. The design patterns are great, but they don't give you effective composition. They compose, but you can't kind of take pattern 42 and pattern 75 and say, I want them both together and get something in the code because of the kinds of problems that John talked about because it's, it's not, not flexible enough. So somehow I want to be able to bridge that gap a bit. You might say this is already happening, and in some sense you're already right. That's why I started with Mylan and patterns. But happening and having a theory of it happening aren't the same thing. Or you might say, look, this is interesting, but it can't be made to work. You can't actually turn this into an idea that changes system development. I think that's the objection that has the most bite. So I want to spend the last part of the talk now trying to, trying to answer that. Brian talks about registration, and one of the examples he uses in, in, in the book is he talks about registration in Emacs. And he says that Emacs derives much of its power from supporting multiple simultaneous takes or registrations on the string of characters in its buffer in just the way he's talking about. So, for example, if you've got this little object-oriented programming language, and you say Control-K in Emacs, it registers all of that as the first line and everything else, and it does it. Whereas if you say Control-Meta-K, it registers all that as the first S expression, and it does that. And, and, and the brilliance of that text structure is in fact that it supports all these multiple registrations without them getting in the way of each other. Right? That's sort of why, even though many of us thought we were unhappy when the people who were working on structured editors gave up and went to an all-text foundation, it's actually turned out working so well. Right? That might actually be a deep issue why that was right, rather than just tactical. So talk briefly about joint point mechanisms. The idea of joint point mechanisms at PARC and, and, and some of the first AOP systems that we did were, in fact, directly trying to chase this idea. It's grown up a lot, and a bunch of other people came up with essentially the same idea uh, at the same time. But joint point mechanisms work a little bit like this. You start with some classic system structure. You atomize what's going on there in order to see sub-elements. Then you dissolve the structure boundaries. And then 
you are going to register the structural elements differently first by identifying some properties that they have and then grouping them according to those properties. And then once you've got them grouped, you can say specific things about each group. Right? That's basically the join point model idea. Except it's not quite that because you get, you get a thing that I can't actually make Keynote do, which is you get to have them both ways at the same time. And you can use that way of thinking and sort of tear apart any of the existing aspect-oriented mechanisms, right? Aspect J has two of these, right? Points in the execution flow are, are the points, the sub-elements. Point cuts regroups them, and advice says something about the groups. The inner type declaration or open class mechanism. The class member declarations are the, are the sub-elements. Signatures let you talk about them in a different structure, and you can define them. Hyper-J kind of mixes both those ideas together. Let's you get these slices that are sort of the regrouping and compose them. So registration effectiveness is going to be something like that. Something like join point models, I think. But, but you ought to object right away. You ought to object because you ought to say, look, man, you told us that formality was the wrong idea, and that's formal at the bottom. Right? Those, those, those points that you're teasing out are clearly formal. And you're right. At some point, it seems to me that if you're building on digitality, then you're building on formality. So this, this idea can't be about getting rid of formality. Instead, I think the thing to do is to focus on zest and the other properties of the way people make sense of the world and registration. That, that you might have access to. Things like trade-off between crispness and effectiveness, negotiated abstractions, transient registrations, dot, dot, dot. Although, you might want to look at Roxos' thesis, right? Roxos' thesis was um, distinguished in, the re- in, in work in reflection because it was non-implementational reflection. As near as I know, it's the only non-implementational reflection work, meaning just that the thing that's being reflected on is completely divorced from the thing that's doing the reflecting. And that gives you a little bit more decoupling. Um, But as long as we're building on digital computers, I I think you can't get formality completely out. And I'm okay with that. I'm going to look at three pieces of work now to try to talk about what this might be like. First is some work by Elisa Banyasad, Gail Murphy at UBC, and uh, Krista Schwaninger at Siemens on a thing called design pattern rationale graphs. What happens here is it's kind of, there's a two-stage piece of work. First, what you do is for the pattern library, the developer constructs a sort of lightweight natural language parse of the pattern text. And you can kind of do that once for the library. Then, for the specific code in question, the developer does a kind of mapping between entities in the code and concepts in the pattern. And then what happens is that the developer can do different kinds of queries. They can do queries on the on the pattern description text, the natural language text, or queries on the code and see the correspondence. Right? So here they're sort of looking at the update efficiency of the registration interface, and they do a, a search for efficiency in the natural language. It pulls up a little sub-piece of the text, and they see the relevant parts of the code. So what's happened there is that there's a, there's a, a binding to external semantics one of these key things that I've been talk- that, 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 that we get out of Brian and Lucy's work. There's no effectiveness, though. Okay. 
Let's look at how you might get a bit of effectiveness. This is work by Jan Hahnemann, um, a student who Gail Murphy and I both worked with at, um, at UBC, on a thing called role-based refactoring. What happens here is, is a similar, it's sort of like the middle, the second step of, of, of Elisa's work plus a third step. You have a role description, you have a pattern description in terms of roles, not quite a pattern description, but let's call it a pattern description in terms of roles. And the developer binds those role elements to the text. And then there's a set of refactoring rules written in terms of the pattern, in terms of the roles, that by operating at the role level actually rearranges the source code. So what you have here is you have effectiveness via an externally imposed semantics. Let me show you a third idea. This is a piece of work by Terry Hahn, a student that I've been working with at UBC on a thing called Fluid AOP. In Fluid AOP, you would normally just see kind of the left side of the screen. But in order to help you understand what it is, I'm going to have a right side of the screen. So I'll come back to explain what the left is supposed to look like. First, let me look at the right. This is the age-old and infamous display updating example. I've got two classes, line and point. You really don't need to read this in detail, don't worry. I've got two classes, line and point, with set P1, set P2, move by, set X, set Y, move by. Right? The, the, the aspect J example that some of you have seen too many times. What you have on the left is there's this fluid aspect, it's called, and there's a point cut here that basically says, find every call to note change, or I should have set up the example better. The thing that the developer is going to try to do is change this implementation so that instead of calling note change after every change, it calls start change before every change and finish change after every change. That's what the developer is going to do here. So what they do is they write this fluid aspect that says, get me everything that calls note change and overlay it. Now here's the interesting part is this overlay. Think of this as a diff. Every place where all the overlaid things are identical, you see text. And every place where they're not, you see gray. And you have effective access to the text. So that in particular, if you just start typing, editing this thing, everything would change. Remember, you wouldn't normally see the stuff on the right. You would just know that it was happening. So what's happening there is you have this registration, this abstraction that isn't complete that you're working in terms of. You might say, well, I don't, I don't see enough here to really know what's going on. And you might sort of click on it, and the tool might say, well, I can give you more, but in order to give you more, I have to split the abstraction into two different point cuts. Because that's the most detail I can give you for what you asked for. So now you could see some more, and you might say, oh, it's OK, change it back to the more abstract version. What's going on here, I think, is in these examples is, first, there's the binding to external socially mediated semantics. You've bound the code to this natural language text, which is external and socially mediated. Then there's effectiveness via some external semantics. Then the last example sort of shows this negotiated transient abstraction. One thing I should have said about that, to be clear, is you might do this fluid aspect, but if you come back next week, it's not guaranteed to look the same. 
because somebody might have edited something else, and now this just won't look the same. It's a, it's a transient abstraction. It depends on right here and now. And all of the examples show a kind of abstraction or effectiveness trade-off. Because they're all, they all give you a little bit of effectiveness. But in order to give you the kind of fluidity which, which, with which they let you talk about high-level structure or talk about external semantics, they don't give you as much of an effectiveness as you're used to having. So I'm about to wrap up here. Brian says at one point in his book, it is interesting to speculate on how the mainstream programming community will rise to this challenge of developing external, social, and negotiated categories. I basically said, look, this has been bugging me for a while. Sorry, there's a P missing there. I apologize. This has been bugging me for a while. Because as a language designer, I love the kind of effectiveness and compositional power that we give but I see how much more flexible things that patterns are in terms of dealing with situation particulars and high-level structures. And it's also been bugging me because I sort of, I think I know what computation is, but I spent 14 years with people on either side of me saying that I, you know, I had this extraordinarily narrow view of the world that just wasn't doing justice to the things that were interesting about software and software development. Notice that I, I'm taking a little... I'm not talking about a new theory of computation. I'm talking about a new theory of software development right? so that I don't have to take the other stuff head on. And also because I think it really is different. It's about developing the software here. So this is what was bugging me. I sort of told a story that said intentionality seems like it steps up to the plate with the wherewithal to be a spanning theory. And there's the summary. Software development is rich with intentional relationships. Intentional things appear at least to not be formal all the way down. At the highest level, and I use highest level loosely, at the highest level, ethnomethodology and indexicality of language says things there are not formal in, in some important sense of formal. At the lowest level, Brian's book, the ideas of flex and slop and registration say things are not formal. If we want to work with effective higher level abstractions, I think we have to find a way of embracing these ideas. I suggested what registration-based effectiveness might look like. I talked about it in terms of some characteristics. Negotiated, social, external, transient, dot, dot, dot. I showed a bunch of examples that each have little bits of this. And the question, ultimately, about what this project would be about is can you build both a sort of foundational account of software and software development as well as tools and mechanisms that work kind of this way? Thank you very much. Hi, uh, my name is Steve Metzger. Um, I've, I've often thought that uh, it would be nice if classes had fuzzy boundaries. And I wonder if you think that uh, fuzzy sets of fuzzy logic hold some promise for letting classes be a little looser about 
what objects are in them and yet retaining some mathematical uh, formality? Um, that's a great question, which I knew would come up, and I simply did not have... Um, I just did not have the resources to have figured out the answer to that question yet, but that's certainly a question. Thank you. Do you know, does anybody know the... Well, no. We'll just leave it at that. That's a good question. Andrew, can you turn down the stage lights just a little bit so I can see people? So, first of all, Gregor, this is an intellectual tour de force. This is a wonderful talk. And if this is what you did last night <laughs> or the night before between leaving the bar and you know, going to sleep, this is, this is pretty amazing. So, thank you. Thank you. There's enough material here to keep my gears spinning sloppily for a long time. Um, so maybe you could help by giving some examples of, of where, according to this theory, today's software development practices are on the wrong foot, where we're not being sloppy enough, or we have some idea that things are formal all the way down that doesn't mesh with this reality that causes us to go wrong. Right. Another excellent question. Um, I don't want to discourage any questions. I, I want to remind you of the thing I said about the beginning. This talk is not built on 12 years of work. So I'm, I'm not going to have solid answers to many of the questions, but I do want to hear them. Um, look, I tried at the end to give you a bit of a sense of that, okay? of, of what it might be for it to be different. So here's an idea. Here's a totally wacky idea that I had walking over here today, which is you take, you put fluid AOP design pattern rationale graphs, and role-based refactoring together. You link that together somehow. You have a piece of, of external semantics for a pattern, for some code. You edit the natural language, and you get, and this is crucial right here, and you get a description of what you might need to do in the code which you know is neither complete nor correct. Right? I think every time you shoot an idea down today by saying, look, it's not going to be complete or correct, that's a place to think, well, if it's, embedded in a, in, if it's embedded in the social way that people work anyways, people are really good at dealing with things which aren't complete, correct, precise, clear, so maybe it's okay. I, maybe that's it. I certainly agree that for a software developer to complain about something because it's neither complete nor direct is a... <laughs> We've got no right to do that because everything we do is neither complete nor correct. <laughs> right, but we... But I was asking the, the opposite question. What is it that we're doing today that we shouldn't be doing? That I think I, but I think I just answered you, okay. Andrew. I said... You're, you're saying we're shooting things down because they're not complete or correct. Yeah, I think we're, we're requiring ourselves to use things that have to have this... Here's another way that I've thought about it, which is everybody knows that we complain all the time about how these big software systems are nowhere flexible as they, somehow they ought to be. On the other hand, from the foundation on up, you're requiring yourself to use a kind of tool which is completely crisp and, and, and fixed ontology and dot, dot, dot. I can't point at more examples than that. I wish I could. Mark. Um, hi, I, I do want to say this was an absolutely brilliant and wonderfully informative talk. I just absolutely loved it. I wanted to say that first. Uh, second thing is um, there's some wonderful connections between the observations you're making here and the approach you're making 
and uh, Austrian economics. Uh, the Austrians um, have been uh, uh, very vocal at criticizing the encroaching formality of mainstream economics. There's a book that Hayek wrote in the 30s called The Counter-Revolution of Science, where he said that, that, eco- that economists, driven from, from physics envy, essentially, um, have, been, have been applying a set of criteria to the, kind, the conversations they have in a search for rigor that has prevented them from being able to continue having the conversations about important issues that they used to be able to have. Um, Hayek's own account of what the central problem of economics is resembles tremendously our sense of what what the problem of large-scale software engineering is. Um, In both cases, the, 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 the... problem that the system solves is how it is that separate agents each um, each um, operating mostly in ignorance of the world around them uh, come to to formulate plans where those plans tend to mesh together well with the plans of other entities that are operating in ways that they're mostly ignorant of. Okay, thank you. You've just... I'm thinking of teaching a grad seminar in the spring, and they won't thank you because I think you've just added something for them to read. But thank you. I will look at that. Okay. I don't think there's any answer to give to that. So, um, okay. Um, uh, Thanks. I didn't know anything about that. Hi, I'm uh, Stephen Strom with CSC. I just, there's an alternate view which came basically out of the psych project and some of the stuff that Doug Linnae did in terms of creating large ontologies and then adapting them with micro theories, which seems to sort of be taking the idea that it's not so much sloppiness, but you just need a lot of facts. And I'm curious what your view is relative to Psych and its approach to how to model the world. You know, I remember remember when Psych happened and I remember Microplanner and Look, I'm not an AI scholar, and I'm not a philosopher. I I am somebody who had the extraordinarily good luck of spending 14 years sitting next to people who were world-class at that. So I I believe that my knowledge is good, but it's narrow, and so I just don't have an informed opinion about that. I think Dan was before... Oh, sorry. uh, Which of you was first? Uh, Doesn't matter. Go ahead. Uh, Elliot Moss, University of Massachusetts. Hi, Elliot. Um, I saw a, I saw an interesting uh, talk announcement go by, and I wasn't able to uh, call up the person's name quickly. But they were suggesting that the uh, the myth of specification then program uh, is really belied by a lot of the software we use, uh, operating systems, a lot of the common applications. They kind of are what they are. We accommodate to that, other things accommodate to that, and they evolve. And that a uh, more appropriate model is biology rather than formalism. Uh, so that they're in an environment, they have all these influences that cause them to evolve and be useful, but they don't have and never will have a formal spec. That's more a comment for your reaction. Right. Um, yeah, so I've seen some of that. I mean, Larry Lessig says some of that, right? Um, 
I'm trying, I guess, to push back on that a little bit because certainly I believe, I believe that in the absence of the thing, we ha- the thing I'm talking about, the code rules. Right? And, and that has problems that, that, Dave, that Dave talked about yesterday afternoon. I, I don't agree with everything like he's saying. Language definition by compiler is right. not very good. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, if there is no effectiveness between these other kinds of documents, which have the kinds of power that natural language has, and code, then in any organization where time matters and being first to market matters, I think you're going to go to just code. So, so one way of saying it is, I never thought I would say this, in a funny way, I kind of agree with some of what the specification people are saying. The problem is that we, we don't have a theory of, of the natural flow from disconnection to connection that, that would make it worth doing that stuff, except in cases where it's obviously worth doing that stuff, like nuclear reactors. Okay, thank you. Hi, Dan. Hi, Dan Weiner of ITA Software. Um, as you know, I'm just a lowly engineer trying to get a job done, and uh, your, your big ideas over the years have, have always seemed to eventuate in something extremely practical that I can use to get my work done. It's probably, it may be much too early to ask this, but do you have a vision in mind of where this is going so that something will come out the far end that's you know, a tool I can pick up and, and use? I, mean, I don't necessarily mean a software tool, but a set of more concrete concepts that I can just apply directly to a job. Um, mm, no. <laughs> no, I mean, look, I did the best I could in the, in the last three examples. Uh, I do think, though, that things like Mylan, I mean, Mylan is a winner. There's just no doubt about that. And I think it embodies some of this spirit. So I, I think that the most practical things that might come out of this in the near term would be to identify things that are already, in a de facto way, have some of this about them. Thank you. Hi, Alan. Um, so there's a thought that occurred to me. I, I wanted to see um, whether you agreed or not. Um, do you see a connection between what you're talking about and um, the sorts of things that uh, Martin Reinhardt has been speaking on here at the last couple uh, oopsla in terms of what seems like very informal ways to think about practical programs, comfort zones where, where you know, Things seem to be right, and it's okay, okay to work in uh, oblivious programs that are oblivious to errors, but still continue working. Uh, it seems to be sort of maybe your different points on some plane here. That uh... Um, yeah, I took out. A, you know, I tried to make a slide that bound to Martin's stuff, uh, the ULS, the ultra large scale system stuff, uh, the allopoetic, autopoetic stuff. I tried to make a slide that, that, that bound to that. And the best I could get that slide to be is, gee, it sure feels that, this is, that, there, that there's something kind of similar. And that didn't seem to be good enough, so I took the slide back out. Uh, so I guess I can say, yes, I think there's something similar there. I can't say something more, more concrete than that. I was going to ask whether this might have something to do with the difference, say, between quantum mechanics and classical mechanics, and if that's kind of where we're seeing our disconnect. So 
some, would somebody please get up and ask a question that I can answer? Uh, <laughs> um, maybe. Uh, in, I, that, in that what we're working in is sort of like in the quantum mechanics lo- level where there's very precise things happening, but when you group it together into larger systems that you see much different effects, and we see it like it's more sloppy in the, in the larger systems. Like in, here's... Here's why I didn't try to do that. I didn't try to do it because Brian's account is a metaphysics. So as a metaphysics, it, it predates physics. Physics and the whole notion of physics is something that has to be built up on top of that account. Right? And one thing that that account has to do is it has to somehow explain why why physics seems so attractive as a universal theory while at the same time saying that it's not. And to stand up here and and try to make an analogy between this thing and and the quantum classical split that even remotely does justice to both the quantum classical split, split in which I'm certainly not an expert, and does justice to the fact that, that Brian's account you know, has to has to sort of produce all that, there was just no way I could say something smart. So I didn't. Uh, I just don't know enough to, to say that. But it feels like it must be something like that. Certainly in your gut, it must feel something like it must have felt to people when they started questioning classical mechanics. At that sense, it must feel a bit like that. From the other side now. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Let me just repeat. I mean, a couple of people said they thought this was great, and I appreciate that. Understand, uh, I do believe I did a piece of work here, but I built on, on work of two brilliant people and supporting communities, um, and, and this is, would not be what it is without their work. Thank you for listening to the Oopsla Podcast. If you want to know more about the Oopsla Conference or if you want to get additional Oopsla Podcast episodes, visit the conference website at oopsla.org. This episode, as well as the other episodes of the Oopsla Podcast, are licensed under a Creative Commons license. The intro and outro music is by a band called The Plugs. The song is called Go East.